We're going to be in Mark chapter 2 again today. And as we start out, I want to ask you a question. It's going to sound like a weird question to start out a sermon with, but it's a good question. Who do you think you are? Have you ever had anybody ask you that question like in a really accusatory way? Who do you think you are? Right? It's not exactly the grace-filled question that we want to ask people, but, but ultimately there is this idea of who do we think we are? And how does that answer, if you really answer that question, what does that mean about your view of yourself and your view in the eyes of other people and who you are in the eyes of God? I really believe that one of the most insidious sins that creeps into the hearts of Christians who are seeking to follow Jesus is the sin of self-righteousness. Where we start to believe our own press clippings. We start to think like, you know, I am pretty great, actually. And when I look at other people and I see all the sins that they're dealing with, you know, I'm, I'm really not doing that bad. We start to believe in our own kind of self-righteousness. But when we start to follow the Lord and we begin to dedicate our lives to Him and His kingdom, there's this worm that can weasel its way to where we actually start to believe that we are better or that we are somehow more worthy of the love of God than maybe other people do, do, you know, deserve. Before we even jump into Mark, into our main subject today, I actually want to look at a quick parable from way later in the book of Luke today, because it ties in exactly with what we're going to be talking about. So you don't have to turn to this if you don't want to. It'll be on the screen. But there's a parable from Luke. Jesus is talking. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's another story in the Bible of of a Jewish man that will go and pray. It was actually a very famous story. Jewish prayer for men at the time, they would go and they'd say, thank you, God, that I am not a a dog, a sinner, or a woman. Nobody? Okay. Right? It was this self-righteousness that, thank you, God, that I am who I am. And it was totally based in, in what we believe that we have somehow earned. And today, with that parable in our context, I want to turn back to Matthew chapter 2, sorry, Mark chapter 2, 
And we're going to continue on in this chapter that we started last week. And we're going to talk about one of Jesus' disciples being called to follow him. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. This is right after everything we talked about last week, if you were with us. And talking about Jesus, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to call the righteous, not the righteous. I just almost messed up that whole story. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Mark continues with his trademark quickness of moving from vignette to vignette story and this part of his letter is often called the controversy narratives because everything that's happening is happening quickly and each thing comes with a new controversy a new thing that somebody could have read and be like whoa whoa what he did what he did he he hung out with who and he's he's talking to these scribes remember in the last story he's talking and he tells the man that his sins are forgiven and the scribes freak out and they're like only god can forgive sins and then jesus is kind of like i know right now you're starting to get it right so there's these controversies and and then he jumps immediately to this new controversy of jesus breaking societal norms and traditional rules. And he goes out by the Sea of Galilee. He's teaching the crowds, which we learned last week. He said that was his whole goal, was to go and to teach the gospel to the crowds. The miracles are something that's happening kind of on the side. He's doing it to bless people, to take care of people. But he's there to teach. And as he goes, he sees Levi, the tax collector, and he tells Levi to follow him. And Mark just kind of jumps over this real quick, but like, it's crazy that Levi does. Like, he drops everything in his life and then just says, okay, I'll follow you. Mark just states what's happening very matter of fact, but what's happening here is crazy. Levi, who we will later know as Matthew, he's the disciple Matthew, he's the author of the book of Matthew, He is a Jewish man who works for the Roman government. He is a part of the oppression of the Jewish people. And so he is seen as nothing short of an absolute traitor against his own people. And he is absolutely hated because he is a tax collector. And the way that they did taxes at that time was through something called tax farming. Anybody could go to the Roman government, any of those Jewish people, and they could give a bid and saying, I will give Rome this much taxes if you let me be the tax collector. And Rome would say, okay, highest bidder, you could be the tax collector. 
But then everything that they could get over that bid, they could pocket for themselves. And so anything that they could manipulate from people, anything that they could extort from their own people, became their own wealth. And so they have this job where they're extorting their own people and they are protected by the power of Rome. And I know that we don't like taxes. Does anybody like taxes? Get out. No, just kidding. Um, I know we don't like taxes, but taxes in those days were probably even more with today. There were so many different taxes. There was what they called a poll tax. Poll tax was basically, we're going to tax you for being alive. If you want to breathe Roman air, this is your poll tax. Everybody who was an adult had to pay a poll tax until they were 65 years old. And then there was income tax. 10% of everything that you make right off the top, income tax. But that's not all because there's also a ground tax. 10% of anything that you grow in the soil immediately goes back to Rome. Unless it's wine, then it's 20% because Rome wants their wine. There's ground tax, there's wine tax, there's harbor tax, import tax, export tax, road tax. If you're a fisherman, they tax you on every net that you throw overboard and every fish, individual fish, that you pull up in your net. If you were a person who had a cart, and you set up inside the city to sell your wares, they charged you a tax per wheel of your cart. So you don't want the big fancy four-wheel, you want like the wheelbarrow, because you're only being taxed for one wheel. They taxed everything. They're being oppressed, and they're being oppressed by somebody who is supposed to be one of their own people. You start to understand how much they hate these tax collectors who are their own Jewish people, but they have turned against them. These men were banned from the synagogue. They couldn't even take part in their own religious services. They were often completely ostracized for their own families. They would be treated as if they were never born. If a tax collector came to your home and touched your home, your home was then ritually unclean, and you had to ceremonially clean it again. They were viewed not only as hated, but also as lawless and sinful people that were despised. I tell you all of this to get you to understand how unlikely this story is. Matthew, Levi might be one of the most unlikely people that you could have ever looked at and said, that guy's going to follow Jesus. And you can imagine that the other disciples must have had some things to say about this. Now, if, you know, if I know anything about Peter, I'm guessing he had some thoughts on the matter. When Jesus says, hey, tax collector, come on, hang out with us. We don't have it written down, but I'll bet you Peter had some stuff to say. Like, what are you doing? Right? Peter seems to be the only one who, I don't know if it's guts or stupidity, but who will actually like question Jesus. And he says, what are you doing? On top of all of this, we don't know this for sure, 
But the fact that his name is Levi probably means he is from the tribe of Levi. So not only is he a Jewish man, but he's a Jewish man from the priestly tribes. So in a way, you could say he was like a rogue pastor's kid. Like, you guys know all the the rules about pastor's kids. Thank God they haven't applied to my children yet. Right? You hear about pastor's kids like, they're the worst kids. Like, he is a, a priest's kid. He's part of Levi. And he has so completely gone astray from that that he has left all of that, all of those duties, all of those callings, and said, no, I'm going to just live for myself and build my wealth. And yet, somehow Jesus looks at Levi, and he sees something that nobody else sees. He sees something deeper than the way that the society views him. And he extends grace and mercy to Levi that is unimaginable to anybody around them. The power of the grace and mercy of God is on full display in the calling of Levi to be a disciple. And I hope that that strikes a chord in you, in your soul, because it strikes a chord in me, because Levi is somebody that does not deserve the grace of God. And I can identify with that. At some point, Jesus even gives Levi a new name, which, you know, Jesus does a lot. He takes Simon and he calls him Peter. He takes James and John and he says, you guys are the sons of thunder because they wanted to call down lightning and thunder on their enemies. And I love it. Jesus just says, like, calm down, boys. Calm down, sons of thunder. He gives them a new name. And he gives Levi a new name, and he calls him Matthew, and it's beautiful because the name Matthew means gift of God. Jesus looks at Levi, one of the most despised people in all of society, and he says, you're a gift of God. How incredible is that? He looks at a man who is utterly hated and says, I see something more in you. Another part of this story that's amazing, I talked about this just briefly, but the fact that Levi actually drops everything. Luke later says that he dropped everything to follow Jesus because in the eyes of the Roman world, Levi has about as good as you can have it. He's wealthy, he has power, he has protection. But if you walk away from a job working for Rome, you can never go back to that job. He can't, like, two weeks later just be like, oh, man, I really blew it. I need to go back to my tax booth. That life is dead now. He drops everything, and he follows Jesus. He gives up everything, which we know is an easy exchange. But for him at the time, he's like, I'm walking away from a very cozy life. If you're watching the show The Chosen, like, I think it does a pretty good job of showing... Matthew's kind of there with his, like, gold stuff everywhere. He's got all these things. He's got nice clothes. And then all of a sudden, he just leaves, and he starts following this wandering rabbi around the world. The next little part of this story is so cool to me because we don't, we don't know all the context because, like I said, Mark jumps, right? Levi follows him, and all of a sudden, boom, we're at Levi's house. 
Mark jumps to the next scene, and Jesus and his disciples and Levi and all of his tax collector friends, his sinner friends, are reclining around a table together. And I absolutely love this because in the Jewish community, and and we kind of feel this too, for you to sit down and have a meal with somebody is, is intimate. Right? It, it means you're fellowshipping, but more so than just like hanging out, talking around the water cooler. You're, you're spending time together. You're breaking bread. There's, there's an intimacy. And in their community, for you to do that, for you to sit down and break bread with somebody, means that you are accepting them into your life. It's a big deal. And so Jesus is sitting there with a table full of tax collectors and what it just calls sinners, which in their world, just meant like the dregs of society, the lower class. And he's sitting there, and he's having a meal with all these infamous people. And I love that, again, we don't know the whole context here, but it seems like that the first thing that Levi does when he starts to follow Jesus is say, I need all of my friends to know this guy. I need everyone around me, all the people that are important to me. I need them to know Jesus. And so all of a sudden they're around his table. And the first thing we have recorded that Levi did as a follower was to introduce people to Jesus. And I think we're missing this so often. Because we might find Jesus and we say, that's great for me, but I don't want to offend anybody else. We live in this world where the highest standard is to just, like, not offend anybody. But Levi understands that he has just been called out of darkness and brought into light. He understands that his world has just gone from living 100% for himself and all of his own garbage to following God in the flesh But we've believed this lie, like, my faith is just a personal thing that I don't want anybody else to be offended by. But that's not the call of Jesus on our lives. We were called to share the gospel with anyone that will listen to us. With anybody that comes within the scope of our influence. So why don't we? What I'm about to say is going to sound harsh. I'm talking to myself too before I say this. Why don't we share our faith, our, our the gospel truth with people? There's only three reasons that I can come up with, and they're not good reasons. One, we're scared. We're scared that people will think we're weird. We're scared that people will think that we're odd, that they won't want to be friends with us, that they'll reject us, that they won't want to hear what we have to say, and so they'll reject us out of hand. But over 300 times, we've talked about this all the time, over 300 times Jesus says, don't live your life in fear. Do not fear. But we live so afraid of what the world might think of us that we just say, I, I, I really 
don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. I don't want to offend them, and I don't want them to think I'm weird. Maybe we're not scared. Well, if we're not scared, then two is we don't actually care about those people. That's the reality if we're really honest, right? Like if you really break it down to its logical conclusion is if I'm not afraid to share my faith with you and I just don't, then I just don't actually care if you're lost. I don't actually care that I believe that Christ is the only answer to everything that ails us, but I'm not willing to share that with you because I just can't be bothered with it because I'm apathetic. Or number three, and this one's the scariest to me because I think it's the natural progression, is we don't actually believe God or his word. If we say, I'm not scared, and I do care about people, but we don't share the gospel, then the logical answer is, We don't actually believe the gospel is true. We don't actually believe that without Jesus, people will be lost for eternity. We don't actually believe that people's lives are better and that their eternal destiny is greater if they know Jesus. And I can't, I've wrestled with this this week. I can't get my mind around this. If we don't share the gospel then it's one of these three things. And you might argue with me, maybe. Maybe you're like, no, it's totally not. But to me, at least for me, if I look at it and say, it's one of those. If I don't do it, if I just don't share, if I don't go out and preach the gospel like Jesus has called me to, then one of these three things is true. And I don't want to live my life in fear. And I do want to care for people that I believe are lost and I want to believe God. And even when I struggle, I've, if I have a life verse, it is, Jesus, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Because I want to believe fully in what God tells me. Because he has changed my life and the lives of countless people that I can see that were lost and now they're found. We're in darkness and now they're with God. If we've been saved from our own sin and destruction by Jesus, then we are called to share that same gospel with others. Hear what I'm saying, though. I'm not saying you have to be the religious jerk. Please don't hold signs up that say sinners are going to hell. Because I don't think that is remotely how God would ask us to live our lives. But he does ask us to be a model and to show people, and to share our faith with people. Levi is convinced. He leaves everything behind to follow Jesus, and the very first thing he does is he gathers all the people that are in his life that desperately need Jesus, and he brings them around a table to break bread together. And he's got the benefit of physically having Jesus right there. And we say, well, if I had Jesus right there, well, we do. It might be different, but Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of time. 
What I really want you to notice here is Jesus' reaction when the scribes, those same scribes that he read their minds in the last story, remember that? They didn't even say it. He's just like, why are you thinking that? That's scary. Okay, now they start actually verbalizing and questioning him. And they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears them and he responds so perfectly. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And I got to tell you, this hit me so hard this week because maybe I'm slow. And maybe you all had this thought before and I'm the last one. That's possible. But it hit me. If Jesus wasn't eating with sinners, who would he be eating with? Nobody. Table for one, Jesus. The only non-sinner. That hit me so hard because their question is, why are you eating with sinners? And so that question alone shows the sheer arrogance that they're speaking with. Because they're putting themselves in the category of non-sinner. Righteous one. And so Jesus responds, he says, I'm here, I'm a doctor here for sick people. And I love it because they don't even understand what he's saying. And I didn't understand what he was saying. Because he's not saying, I'm here for the sinners, not you holy people. He's saying, I'm here for the sinners and you don't even realize that you are one of them. Your self-righteousness has you so convinced of who you think you are that you don't even understand that you need the physician. They have fallen for this ugly lie of self-righteousness. They have stacked themselves up against other people and found everyone else wanting and them worthy. So when Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners, they think he's saying, I'm not here for you righteous people, but really what he's saying is, I'm here for everyone who understands that they need help. You don't go to the doctor unless you admit that there's a reason that you need to go to the doctor. How awkward would that be? You go to the doctor, the doctor says, what brings you in today? Nothing, I feel great. Okay, pay your copay. See you later. Thanks for the money. Now, you go to the doctor because you acknowledge that something is wrong and that you can't fix it with your own abilities. If you were here last week, we saw Jesus tell his disciples clearly that his primary goal during his earthly ministry was to preach the gospel. And in this story, we see him specifically saying he came to preach the gospel to those who know that they need a Savior. So my challenge for us this week is twofold. Number one, that we don't fall into this insidious lie of self-righteousness. It leads us to not actually think that we are the ones who need Jesus, but we just look out at others and say, oh, that's sad. They need Jesus. You need Jesus. I need Jesus. I don't know if you've seen the meme. I love the meme. It says, like, do you need 
do you need Jesus in your lives? Like, dude, I need Jesus to go to Walmart. J.C. Ryle, an English bishop, said, You cannot search your heart too diligently, for this is the subtlest of enemy of all. Beware of thinking as the devil would have you that the parable is a very good one for everyone else, but does not exactly touch your case. Be sure in this way you will lose your own souls. Spurgeon said, The greatest enemy of the human souls is self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And Pastor Paul David Tripp says, Our sin is what separates us from God, but it is our self-righteousness that keeps us from running to Him for the grace He willingly gives to all who come. Please do not fall into this lie. Whether you have followed Jesus for two minutes or decades, we need the righteousness of God because we do not have it. And whether you're the religious scribe or the tax collector, you are just as much the sinner that should be sitting at the table around Jesus. Number two, that we don't fall into the world's lie that our faith is something that should be kept personal and not shared with others. This is the rally cry of a world that thinks that coexistence is the greatest of all values. But the truth of the Word of God is that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And that nobody comes to the Father except through Him. Let us not live in fear to share this truth with a world that we can look at and see. You can look at the world and say, it is broken. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the answer in you. Don't be afraid of the world that tells you to just shut up. Let us not live in apathy as we watch people be lost for eternity because we honestly just don't care enough to have difficult conversations with them. And please, Lord, don't allow us to be people that don't actually believe your word and think that what you're telling us is a lie so we don't share the gospel because we don't actually buy into it. Please understand this as we finish up today. All of us are Levi's. Every one of us is a sinner that is in desperate need of salvation. And some people would probably look at you as people have looked at me and even told me, really? You? You're a Christian? You of all people are following Jesus? Yeah, I know it's nuts. I'm just as surprised as you are. <laughs> and yet Jesus called all of us to follow him. And then remember, if you were with us a year ago when we were in the book of Revelation, remember Revelation chapter 2 says that to those who conquer, meaning those who live a life and devote it to Jesus and, and get to the end, he says, he will give them a new name that is unique for them. I love this because he looks at 
Levi, and he says, you're not Levi, you're Matthew. You're a gift of God. And I can't wait someday to hear Jesus give me a new, and I like my name. Like, Nick's cool. Nick means victory. I can work with that. So, but someday he'll give me a new name that is just mine, and, and that's going to be incredible. And we have to decide if we're going to follow him or just keep living for ourselves. And the work of Jesus isn't done. He was preaching the gospel to those who needed a Savior, and he is still calling his children to himself all over the world. Let us rejoice when a child of God heeds the voice of his Father, even when we are completely and utterly shocked that somebody would listen to him. Especially when it's somebody that you would look to and be like, Really? You? And find joy in the fact that if God can change the heart of that person that you would have never thought he could change the heart of, then he can do some pretty incredible things, can't he? Let's pray.